Thank you, choir. So good to hear uh, them singing the Word of God like that. It's so wonderful. It's amazingly uh, difficult considering the fact that, um, you know, the the Psalm 23 is uh, written as a to be sung, but not in English. And so it is a, a, a wonderful, amazing passage of God's Word. And to hear it uh, sung is just a blessing. Luke chapter 13, page 1202 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, just grab that Bible in front of you. Open to page 1202. You'll be able to follow along with us as we uh, discover a little more about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as He is teaching us about the kingdom of God, about the kingdom of heaven, and about how we uh, can enter and who He is and how that process takes place and what a wonderful uh, amazing uh, study we've had through the last chapter and a half of Luke has been especially uh, just pleasing and a blessing to my soul. So Luke 13, page 1202, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you now for your word. God, we receive it as a perfect, uh, just unspotted, inerrant gift, Lord, from you to us. It's intended for us, God. We thank you for it now, God. We need your help. May the Spirit... Come in this place, and Father, may He give us the ability to hear with spiritual ears and hearts that will receive Your Word, God. Let it speak to us, Father, as only it can. Thank You for this time and this gift. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when when you uh, spend a lot of time in, in hospitals, especially if God were ever to call you into the ministry, one of the things you, you just got to do is you, you got to spend a lot of time in hospitals. Whether you like it or not, it's just the way it goes. It sort of comes with the territory. And when you're in hospitals with people, you sort of get the rhythm of how things go. And it, there's a lot of universal things about being in a tense moment in the hospital with somebody Regardless of their age, regardless of sort of their family history, regardless of anything else, you know, there's that moment where maybe you're sitting there with the family and there's been a very uh, dangerous, serious procedure has taken place, something like that. And everyone's kind of sitting in the room laughing and joking and trying to just break the tension up because it's, it's, a, it's a tough time and everybody's worried and nervous. Then the door opens and the doctor comes in. And when the doctor comes in, Everything in the room stops. Everyone is silent. Everyone is quiet. Everyone is focused and listening to what the doctor is about to say. And we're all sort of on pins and needles waiting to hear this report. And here's what never happens. What never comes into that conversation is the way we feel about things, our opinion about things, uh, what we think or have experienced in the past about things, in that moment, all we're focused on are the facts. We want to hear the facts from the expert about what the situation is. And the doctor comes in and starts talking, and every word the doctor says, the family is listening intently. And if there's a husband or a wife or maybe a daughter or a son or someone who's been caring for this loved one for quite some time, you can always tell because they're very proficient at this and they know how this goes. And they're taking notes and they're writing down and they're trying to spell words they never have a chance of spelling in any uh, dream or idea they ever would have had. But they're just writing it down because they want to get everything right. Now, isn't it interesting That in that situation, that makes complete and utter sense. But when it comes to where your eternal destiny will be, how it is a person enters the kingdom of God, how quickly that conversation shifts into all of our ideas and feelings and thoughts about what we think is going to happen. And the way we think it's going to go. And all the things we think we can justify. And the things that we've decided aren't that bad. And all these sorts of things about what Jesus likes and what He doesn't like. And what God's pleased by and what He's not pleased by. And we start rationalizing about, well, we know people that are worse than us. And this and that and the other. And all these crazy things come into this conversation when the Bible is crystal clear. There's really no room. There's no need. All of that is a complete frivolous waste of time. There's no point in that conversation. The Bible tells us exactly what we need to know. Now, it's not what we want to know 
oftentimes, but it's what we need to know. And so, for example, Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, and he says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. But who will? But those who do the will of my Father in heaven. So he declares that there's going to be these people who call him Lord, Lord. They're not going to all enter. It's going to be the ones who do the will of his Father in heaven. But then he says this, many, and that's really the key word here. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not done great wonders in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? And he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Now, here's the scary thing about that passage of Scripture. Many. That's the scary part. It's bad enough to have to rationalize with not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord. Because undoubtedly, there's going to be people who just go, uh, whatever this is about, whatever. But the ones who immediately recognize what's going on, immediately recognize who it is they're standing and facing judgment before, there'll be those who won't enter. And many, many will be rejected and then will try to justify because of there's things that they did, but they weren't clearly the will of the Father who's in heaven. Now that ought to make us sort of stand back a minute because what I'm trying to get you to see is, is that your life hangs on the balance of these words. And the doctor has just walked into the room and said to you, here's the diagnosis. Many people are going to say, Lord, Lord. Many. And they're going to say that they did certain things, but they were the things that they decided were the things they ought to do. They were the things that they thought were the right things to do. They were the things that they had rationalized in their mind. But they were not the will of the Father in heaven. Now, am I nuts or is that not the most important information on the planet? And Jesus wants you to know. He wants you to know. He's not playing this mystery game with you. He wants everyone in this room to be crystal clear what the will of the Father in heaven is. So that on that day, in that moment, you will be one who will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into thy kingdom. That's what you want to hear. But many, many are going to have all these ideas. They're going to have all their own rationalization. And they're going to be rejected. Luke chapter 13. Jesus has just said some pretty difficult things to us. He said to us last week, based on this question that was posed to him back in uh, verse 23, when someone from the crowd yelled out, Lord, are there only a few who are going to be saved? Great question. Jesus then turns around and answers the question by telling the crowd that they need to strive to enter the narrow gate. So he's sort of giving us this picture that there's a wide gate and a narrow gate. And the narrow gate, you you can only enter that gate one person at a time. You don't come in as a family. You don't come in with your, with your lineage and your heritage and your parents' faith or your grandmother's faith or anything else, but it's one at a time. You come through the narrow gate and you've got to strive to get there. And so we dealt with this issue of what Jesus is talking about. And then he went on and he said, now there's going to come this moment where the door is going to shut. The master is going to shut the door. And then there's going to be these people who start beating on the door. And as they're beating on the door, they're sort of giving again the reason why, the rationale why the door ought to open and they ought to be ushered in. But the master is going to say, well, I don't know you. I don't know you, and I don't know where you're from. In other words, I've never known you. You've pretended to be something, but you're not real. You're not authentic. I don't know you. But what he did say is that in verse 29, he said they're going to come from the east and the west and from the north and the south, and they're going to sit down in the kingdom of God. So they're going to be those that are there, but they're not going to be the ones 
that everyone suspected because then he sort of leaves us hanging with this statement that indeed the last, they're the last who will be first and the first who will be last. Now, what, what does he mean there? Why does he leave us with that thought? So last week he just left us sort of hanging, just laying that out there that, you know, it's, it's his way of saying it's not going to be exactly the way you think it's going to be. So you might want to pay close attention to exactly what the doctor says. You might want to write down the prescriptions. You might want to make sure they're filled correctly. You might want to get you one of those little organizers so you take the right pill on the right day. Because he's giving you the prescription to come into the kingdom. But here's the thing. Before I ever say another word, I already know that there are hearts shutting right now. They're just shutting. And I pray, I pray that it's not you. Let's begin reading in verse 31. Now on that very day, so we're, we're just picking right up after Jesus has finished teaching about only a few who will be saved. On that very day, some Pharisee came and he said to Jesus, get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to him, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform and perform cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. You see, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say unto you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, this is so rich. I want you to see, first of all, that there's this intimidation. We start with intimidation. This Pharisee comes and he makes this proclamation to Jesus. Hey, you need to get out of town because Herod wants to kill you. Well, there's a couple things that that draws to my attention, first of all. Interesting that the very people who actually want to kill Jesus, now suddenly one of them is trying to apparently help Jesus. Now, we know that the Pharisees never wanted to help Jesus, only wanted to stop, actually kill Jesus. And so why is this Pharisee suddenly concerned for Jesus' safety? Well, he's not. He wants Jesus to leave. He wants Jesus to get away and stop saying the things that he's saying, which is precisely why I'm willing to bet you that there was some people who were here last week who will never come back here again because of what I said. They don't want to hear that. They want to hear something other than what Jesus says. They want to hear something that makes you feel good. They don't come to church on Sunday morning to hear that. They come to church on Sunday morning to get uplifted and to have a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. And you can get all of that you want, but one day, you know what you're going to get? Depart from me, I never knew you. Because warm fuzzies are just workers of iniquity. The truth is what matters. And so this Herod, who, who wants to kill Jesus, this is Herod Antipas. He's just basically a, a Roman puppet. He's just a Roman authority. The Jews hated him. They didn't like him. They had a terrible relationship. He's the one who murdered John the Baptist and had his head put on a platter. And so th there was all this tension between Herod and the Jews and Herod and Jesus. And everybody was all, you know, tangled up. But suddenly... They're all united in the fact that we want Jesus out. And so this whole statement, this whole threat, is simply to silence Jesus from saying the things that he's saying. And whatever we have to do to get rid of him, if we all have to get together, it doesn't matter. Just get him out of here. But the intimidation obviously doesn't work because what they didn't bank on, what they weren't prepared for, was the de determination of the Savior. Look at the determination in verse 32. Jesus said to him, Go tell that fox... Now, you didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? That just means something different in our culture, doesn't it? I just got tickled every time I was looking at that this week. You know what that means in the Greek? 
Fox. That's what it means. That's good, isn't it? Then he said to him, go tell that fox, Jesus said. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I'll be perfected, or I'll finish my course. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Now, this, this go tell that fox statement, I just want you to understand something. This is a, an expression of utter contempt. Jesus does not appreciate Herod at all. Jesus knows what's coming. Jesus knows who Herod is. Jesus obviously knows Herod's heart. And Jesus tells Herod, uh, calling him a fox, is basically saying that you are a, a sly, manipulative, useless varmint. I mean, it, this is a, a, a very harsh slam against a person who is in a pretty powerful position. Now, if we were to fast forward to Luke chapter 23, here's what we would see. Herod and Pilate come together. And this is what the Bible says. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, this is Jesus going to the cross and the whole trial and all these things going on. Herod saw Jesus. He was exceedingly glad for he had desired for a long time to see him. Well, I thought he wanted him to leave town. Now, all of a sudden, he's glad to see him because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle that was done by him. Then he questioned Jesus with many words, but Jesus answered him, nothing. Do you know that this is the only time that Jesus was ever questioned or interrogated by someone where he did not speak? So that just gives you an indication of the way Jesus felt about Herod, the tension that was between him, the way this was going. Verse 10, then the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused Jesus. Then Herod, with his men of war, he treated him with contempt. He mocked him. He arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and he sent him back to Pilate. That very day, here we go, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other. Well, there you have it. And previously, they had been enemies of one another. You see... They can find common ground in their hatred of the one who speaks the truth. The last thing they want to hear is the truth. And Jesus knows their hearts. And so as Herod interrogates Jesus, he doesn't say a word to him. But notice about the way Jesus responds. Notice there's no hesitation. There's no fear. There's utter confidence and trust in the providence and the will of his heavenly father. Jesus understands that he was born to die. He understands exactly why he's here in this moment. He knows for sure what all of this is about. He's not caught off guard by any of it. He doesn't waver one bit. He responds immediately to this, Herod wants to kill you. Well, go tell that fox, I'm doing my thing and he's going to have to get over it because nobody can stop me. In John chapter 10... Jesus clears up exactly how all of this is going down and who's in control and why this is happening. When he says this, he says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. See, Jesus has confidence in the command of his father, the providence, the power, the will of God that's going to take place according to God's plan, exactly the way God depicted it, it would do, it would happen. And so Jesus understands that he rests in that and he just immediately moves forward, which draws me back a little bit to think, now, what do we do when suddenly we're caught a little bit off guard? In other words, Do we respond to intimidation, to suddenly these trials that come into our lives, these tough things, and suddenly God is weakened? Suddenly, you know, the Lord's not able to fix this in our mind, and we get rattled a little bit. I want you to just take note of how Jesus responds to adversity. He knows who's in control, and He knows exactly what is going to happen, and He does not waver. And my prayer is that all of us in this room who are God's children, who are co-heirs with Christ, who've been adopted and grafted into his family, would have this confidence in our heavenly father in whatever adversity the world may throw at us. 
So we have this intimidation attempt, followed by this determination, and then there's a lamentation. Look at this, verse 34. Jesus then says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophet and stones those who were sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers a brood under her wings, but you are not willing. Now this, this phrase, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this is a, this is a, a phrase of great sorrow. This is a statement of great sadness and, and just pain over what is going on. I mean, think about the, think about how many things can you bring to your mind that, that hurt worse than just utter rejection. Rejection of someone that you, by someone that you love, someone that you've poured yourself into, someone that you've, you've done all that you could do. And yet they just reject you. And Jesus is, is facing this. And you know, sorrow and rejection, this is nothing new for Jesus. I mean, this is, this has been the, the story of his life. He spent every waking moment on earth. His entire earthly ministry was fraught with rejection. And sorrow and people just, you know, uh, pretending to worship him and being so glad about the wonderful miracles he could perform and all the things he could do as long as it was serving their purpose. I mean, everyone was so thrilled when he could feed everyone out of a few loaves and fishes. But then a few minutes later, they're all leaving because he declares that you have to you have to make me your food and your drink. They just leave. They're not interested in that. They want the food. They're all about the happy meal. They don't they don't want to they don't want to do anything else. They just want to eat. They're all Baptist. But this isn't new to God. I'm hungry, y'all. Then so God God expresses listen, He's not God is not uh He's not concerned about you seeing the tenderness of His heart. God is not shy about the reality of, of His feelings for His creation. When you read the Bible, there's amazing passages of Scripture that, that bring out the, the reality of God's heart and sorrow and feeling towards man. God, sometimes He, he weeps through His men, like the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet in Jeremiah 13. Here's what Jeremiah says. The Lord speaking through Jeremiah says, verse 16, Give glory to the Lord your God before He causes darkness. And before your feet stumble on the dark mountains, and while you are looking for light, He turns it into a shadow of death. See? He makes it a dense darkness. But if you will not hear it, here's what God says. My soul will weep in secret for your pride. He says, my eyes will weep bitterly. This is the Lord speaking. And run down with tears. The the God of the universe is declaring to his own creation that he feels great sorrow in our pride, in our our stiff-necked, self-righteous attitude and the way that we spurn and reject His love. And He weeps over that. David declares in Psalm 86, But you, O Lord, you're a God full of compassion. You're gracious and long-suffering, abundant in mercy and truth. You see, God, God is he, He's very comfortable with His softer side. He, he doesn't mind you knowing that He cares deeply And he weeps. And so he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one you've killed, the ones that I've sent you, the the gift that I've given you, the people that I've sent your way to to proclaim the truth to you, to help you, to, to steer you in the right direction. And you've killed them. Now, it's strange to me that he would follow up that statement with... How often I've wanted to gather your children. See, I, I think I would have probably said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones all those I sent you. Now you face your doom. Now you get justice. Now you better beware. You better take cover. 
Because I've been so good to you and you've mocked me and you've laughed at me and you've wounded my men. But he doesn't say that. He says, how often? In other words, then, today, in the future, how often have I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers a brood under her wings? But you are not willing. You see, even as, even as you're killing the prophets, even as you're stoning the ones I give you, I still want to gather you as children. I still want to gather you together and protect you and care for you and watch over you. But you're not willing. You see, it's not that God's not willing. Who's not willing in this picture? We're not willing. This is what's so unbelievable. That He gives and He gives and He gives. And we take and we take and we take. And even after all of that, He still longs to reach out and to bring us in and to gather us up and to protect us from danger. We're not willing. And it's so important for you to understand that that people are lost today. Because they've wasted the opportunities that God has given them to be saved. People are in hell right now. There's wailing and gnashing of teeth because they squandered opportunity after opportunity to receive this gift. And during all of Jesus' years of public ministry, He gave people opportunity after opportunity to believe the gospel He did everything humanly possible and and God possible to prove that He was who He said He was. You know, He didn't just come in and proclaim to be something and then say, well, you're going to have to trust me here. But I mean, let's face it, when you're controlling the wind and the waves, when you're raising dead people to life, when you're curing blindness and crippled people and all these things are happening before their very eyes, what is left to doubt? They're not willing. They're not willing. There are people in this room right now. You're sitting within a 10 foot radius of lives that you've seen turned utterly upside down. There's no way that you can explain what you've seen in the lives of people in your family or in your friendships or around you. You've seen them turned from death to life before your very eyes. You cannot explain it with any earthly explanation, yet you are not willing. How? What would it take? You see, they said no for the same reason we say no. It's not because they were pre-programmed to say no. It's not because they sort of were meant to say no. It's because they were not willing to repent. Notice that the key word is, Jesus said, how often I wanted. Jesus willed. But then at the end he says, but you were not willing. The issue is the will. And so they just resist the urging of Christ. We just back away. Just like some of us in this room this morning, we just push away. And we want to say, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe if you just start reading the Bible and you do those things, then you just become a nicer person. You just become a generous person. You know, maybe that doesn't prove that God's real. Well, you didn't know me. You didn't know some of the folks in this room. Because let me tell you something. There's just as much proof in this room as stopping wind and waves and raising dead people and watching crippled people run up and down the street praising God. Just as much proof right here in this room today. But the question is not, is there evidence? The question is, are you willing? John chapter 3. Jesus says at the culmination of this conversation with Nicodemus, he says, this is the condemnation. That light, that the light of the world came, he, he came into the world. Light came into the world. But men loved darkness rather than light. They, they wanted darkness because their deeds were evil. Jesus said, and everyone practicing evil hates the light. 
They do not want to come into the light, lest their deeds would be what? They don't, they don't want their deeds exposed. They don't want to, it's a will issue. It's a want issue. I don't, I don't want to change. I don't want to give up my sin. I don't want to, I don't want to not be in charge. I don't want to harness my own destiny. All these lies that you tell yourself, which are all lies. But they sound so good in your heart. You just convince yourself that, well, you know, somehow it's just going to work out. I mean, you, you, you hear people say things about God they would never say about a doctor or a surgeon, and they're just a human. They just come up with their own ideas. That no, I, I just don't think that. I think all roads lead to heaven. Well, that's just stupid. Jesus says that's just stupid. I mean, what, what else does he have to say? I'm the only way. No one gets to the Father but through me. So, if you believe in anything that has a name other than Jesus, it ain't working. It's just clear. So, what does he, what does Jesus say? How often I want to gather? Gather them of what? Gather them into the safety of his arms. He wants to gather us and protect us. Well, why? Because He's already expressed the fact that, that, that this, is a, this is a broken world. This is a, he, he looks out at the children. He looks out at the... And, and as a hen would gather up the chicks, would say, Hey, there, it's dangerous out there. There's predators out there. And so when, when danger comes, the, the hen would gather them up and hide them under her wing to protect them because there, there's a predator. Something bad's going to happen. And how often is this... He says, how often? Not just one time. One time would be amazing. If it was just once, we could spend the rest of our lives going, there was this one time when God showed up and He gathered up some people and He took them to be with Him in heaven. And we could just tell that story for generations and go, wow, that was amazing. Wouldn't it have been great if we could have been there? But God swings the door open and says, no, come on, today, right now, That 2,000 years ago, he's saying the message and today he's going, it's open, come now, come on. Today, how often I want to gather you up. Today. Isaiah 53 says he's despised and rejected by men. That it's not new to him. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. He knows this pain. He understands this grief. He recognizes that people are shallow and Selfish and hard-hearted. And... But he also knows that there's, there's some that will hear. There's some men and women, some boys and girls that will hear. And he wants to adopt them into his family. Now you think about that for a moment. You ever been through an adoption process? I mean, you think buying a house has a lot of paperwork. You got to answer every question that there ever was. You got to go through every test, every screening, every why. Because they don't just give children to anybody, right? How many, how many people have I had to fill out a recommendation for to be a foster parent or to adopt someone? And as their pastor, I had to say that I believe they're a person of, of good character and trustworthy and because it's serious business adoption is and so the lord is speaking he knows that there are people out there that he's going to adopt into his family there are children that are going to become his children and you don't just you you no matter how many people in the room are rejecting no matter how many people in the room are just mocking and turning their back if there's one child He's going to stay and he's going to say what needs to be said for that child's sake because that child matters. You see, you don't just trust a child to anyone. That's why it's so important for us to be the church that God called us to be. Because if you think that for one second we serve a God, that every single time you get in a big line and you come over here and you hug somebody or you shake their hand and they've just received Christ and been born into this kingdom. If you think God takes that lightly, that's his adopted son or daughter. He doesn't just let them go anywhere. He's entrusted them to us. 
He said, here, I'm going to put you right here in this group and they're going to take care of you and watch over you and love you and teach you. Do you see, if you're, if you're, if you're no good, He won't send His children to you. Which is precisely why there's a multitude of churches that have a multitude of people stand in a multitude of places proclaiming a multitude of things, but they're not God's children. Because God determines where He puts His children. And so if God saves someone, then God puts them where God wants them. And they will not get saved apart from the hearing of God's Word. And so if God's Word is not preached, then people will not be saved. And when someone is saved, that's because the God of the universe has chosen to do that. And He gives them to be cared for. By a church that's faithful. Second Peter 3 says that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but He's, he's long-suffering towards us. He's not willing that any should peri- perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, the Lord wants all to come to repentance, but here's the problem. All won't come, but He desires that. See, the problem's not His will again. It's, we're not willing. He's willing, but we're not. Do we believe it? Do we believe that He's not slack concerning His promises? Do we believe that? Do we, do we want that? And think about the Lord in this context right here in Luke chapter 13 with what He's saying to the group that He's saying to, that He's just exposed who they are and the crimes that they've committed towards Him and the blood that has been shed at their hands of His gift to them, His prophets, His people. And He's not happy. He's not vengeful. He's not rejoicing. He's weeping. Oh, Jerusalem, He says, how I long to gather you up even as you just... Stab me in the back, even as you turned your face against me, even as you robbed my glory and mocked me. I love you. As tears run down the face of God and His very own creation made in His image, unwilling. So what's the result? There's intimidation. Jesus is in determination. There's lamentation, but now there's desolation. Verse 35. See, Jesus says, your house has left you desolate. Desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yeah, there's a prophetic meaning behind what Jesus says. I mean, 70 A.D., that very Jerusalem that He's standing before talking to is going to be completely obliterated by the Babylonians. They're going to surround Jerusalem. They're going to starve people out. People are going to literally starve to death one day at a time. Jewish historians record that there was somewhere, they believe, around 10,000 people who just slit their throat. To end it. But it's not just that desolation. I mean, Jesus is quoting Psalm 118, 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We know that this was what was shouted as Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem for his triumphal entry. As we are even now beginning to think about and prepare ourselves for this Easter celebration this year. We know that phrase. We know what's going on here. But that will not be ultimately fulfilled until Christ comes again. But it is important to understand that it has been spoken in Psalm 118 and it will be spoken again in Luke 19 when in this very moment the Bible is going to say, Then, as Jesus was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And so here they're waving their branches and they're proclaiming, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees are going to call out to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he will respond to them. If I tell them to keep silent, the stones will cry out. And so as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over the city. 
You see, it's again, the Lord comes. They're proclaiming His, His, His deity and who He is. And the Pharisees are saying, rebuke Him. Tell Him to be quiet. And Jesus looks at the city and He weeps. And here's what He says in verse 42. He says, saying this, If you had known, even you, especially in your day, the things that make for your peace, if you had any idea what was going on, but now... They're hidden from your eyes. It's, it's too late for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment around you. Yeah. And starve you out. Exactly as he said it would happen. They're going to surround you and close you in on every side. Why? Because it's a bad world and there's bad people. And that's why he wants to gather them in and protect them. But they're unwilling. And because they're unwilling, they have willfully chosen to face this world alone. And this is what they get alone. This isn't, this isn't God saying, hey, I told you so. This is the world we live in. How many children do we have to lose in this congregation in a month? To stop questioning. It's a bad world. Bad things happen every single day. Don't be surprised. He goes on to say they're going to level your city and your children within you to the ground. And they're not going to leave in you. You see, he doesn't say, and I. He says, and they. They're not, they're not going to leave in you, not one stone upon another. Because why? Because you didn't know the time of your visitation. I was there. I told you what to do. I made it as clear as I possibly could. You didn't want to hear it and you rejected it. And now it's going to be desolation. The door is going to shut and you're going to start knocking. And all of your rationale and all your ideas, it's going to be too late. But this morning he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Why don't you come? Why? Why do you stay? Why do you lag behind? What do you disbelieve? What more could God have done? He paid the ultimate price. He did the hardest thing that could possibly be done. It's accomplished. It's finished. It's over. What would it be like if every person in this room this morning could look upon that cross on the wall and see the same thing? We can all look on that cross and recognize that that is the symbol of the slaughter of the Son of God that led to my adoption into the kingdom of the God of this universe. But many will say, Lord, I, I, I did this and I did that. The gift of all gifts, the opportunity of a thousand lifetimes is right before you. Are you willing to walk through the narrow gate? Are you willing to just lay aside all your pride? Lay aside all the things that are between you and God and all the things that you're mad about and everything you don't understand and all the ideas that you've had and just say, God, at the end of the day, my way is not working. This is what you say. You've clearly shown me that you're real and true. And Lord, I want to I wanna get in the narrow gate. See, you can't sit here this morning and just say, well, maybe this morning I might just hop up and run down through that narrow gate. It doesn't work like that. You have to be invited in. There's a gatekeeper. It's his gate. He owns the gate. He determines everything. And when He moves in your heart, when He stirs you up inside so that right now you feel anxious and anxiety and you're running through your head like, what am I going to tell this person? What are they going to think about this? And how is this going to work? And all these things are going through your head. That's God calling you now before it's everlasting too late. That's God. And he's saying, I know the truth and you know the truth. And that's all that matters in this room. 
Now get up and strive through the gate. So what if, what if my family was an agricultural family? You know, because we're kind of agricultural. I mow the grass. So what if my agricultural family had this amazing piece of property and on this piece of property we, for generations, had worked and built this amazing vineyard. And we had the greatest grapes. They were known around the world for just being amazing and wonderful and beautiful and but then some circumstances changed, and so it sort of went down from generation to generation. And I inherited this beautiful place. But because of some circumstances in our life, Lisa and I would have to pack up the kids and because she couldn't really handle Kayla going to college. So we had to move to college with Kayla. And so because we had to move away, we had to find someone to, to take care of our land. To watch over our farm. I mean, it's not a, a light decision. It's a, it's a big deal. And there's a lot to consider. And so we, we invited you to come and, and, and live in our home and, and partake of all that it produces. And all we ask of you is two things. We said, here, you just come. We've, we've written out everything you need to know about how to take care of this place. Every question you could ever have, we've written it all out in this manual and we've given it to you to take care of it. And every once in a while when the harvest comes, since we're away and we long for this place, you know, if we could just get some, some grapes from the farm so we could sit on our porch at whatever college town we live in and eat those grapes and think about home. And so what if that happened and you moved into my house and I entrusted you with everything, but you, you didn't take care of the farm. In fact, you, you, you just sort of ate all the food, took advantage of all the resources, used up everything, Never replenished anything, cared for anything, and it become a broken down, run down dump. And then one day I come back because clearly something's wrong. And here's what I find in Luke chapter 20. Jesus begins to tell the people this parable. He says, a certain man planted a vineyard and he leased it to some vine dressers and he went out to a far country for a long way. And here's what happens. Now, the, the harvest time came, and so he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent another servant, but they beat that servant, and they treated him shamefully, and they sent him away empty-handed. And so again, he sent a third servant, and they wounded that servant. Now, Lisa and I are thinking, well, what is wrong with these people? We've given them our vineyard. We've, uh, we've given them our home. We've allowed them to partake of all of the goodness of our place. And all we asked for is that they would just give a little. And every time we send someone down at harvest time, they, they beat them, treat them shamefully, wound them. So then the owner of the vineyard said, well, what am I going to do? Here's what I'll do. I'll send my son. I'll send my son. Probably they'll respect him when they see him. So when the vine dressers saw the son, they reasoned among themselves saying, well, this is the heir. This is the one who's come. So let us kill him that the inheritance will be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, Jesus says, well, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? In other words, when I come home, and my wife and I walk up and we see the shambles of what's left of our place. And not only have you wounded and beaten three of our servants, but you've, you've killed my son. And all I've done has been good to you. All I've done is try to, 
give all that I have to you and let you partake of the vast majority. So what will he do? In verse 16, Jesus says, well, he'll come and he'll destroy those vine dressers and he'll give the vineyard to others. You know what strikes me about that parable? Not just the way it correlates with what Jesus is saying here, but the way it begins with a certain man he planted the vineyard. That basically the people who were occupying the vineyard didn't do anything. They hadn't invested anything. They were just reaping all the benefits of the vineyard that this certain man had done all the work and had done all the generations and poured all the effort into cultivating the land and making sure everything was right. And when it was all right, then he turned it over. He invited some people to come in and partake of it. And you know what they did? They just raped the land. They just took advantage. And so he would send a servant. And they just beat him and mock him. So finally at wit's end, he sends his son. And they kill him. And the Bible doesn't say this, but I just wonder that when the owner showed up, before he destroyed him and gave the vineyard to someone else, don't you know that the people occupying that vineyard said, well, wait a minute, we read the manual. We, we even went to a class every Sunday morning on how to run a vineyard. We had a small group where we studied your manual. We went to manual school. We went to vineyard school. We watched vineyard television. We had vineyard t-shirts. We did all sorts of vineyard things. We didn't actually take care of the farm. I mean, we didn't actually do any of the Father's will in heaven, but we had the manual. We had all the stuff. Are we just holding the manual right now? Are all the answers in your lap right now? Are you doing it? Are you doing it? Are we going to get to heaven and realize you're not there? You were right there. You sat on the same pew that I did. We were in the same Sunday school class. I loved your children. We served together. And you're gone. You're not there. You had the manual in your hand. Maybe this morning you think, that's me. That's me. But the problem is I've, I've run this farm down bad. This place is such a wreck. There's no way that I could ever get it back to shape. So maybe it's just hopeless for you. One last thing I want you to consider. That we started this morning in verse 31. Look at what the Bible says. On that very day. Who, who, who said to Jesus? Some Pharisee. This Pharisee came to Jesus, the very people that wanted to kill him. He said, you need to leave town because Herod wants to kill you. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 57, that now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea. His name was Joseph. Joseph, the Bible says, was a man who had become a disciple of Jesus. He was a Pharisee. That even in the midst of the wrecked farm, the slaughtered prophets, the pleading and the warning, there might be one. And Jesus saved a Pharisee. With the gospel. So let me just assure you of one last thing. You cannot be too far away. 
If the door is open, you can come. No matter what you've done. No matter how shameful. No matter how long it's gone on. No matter how embarrassing or pathetic or horrible or whatever the case may be. You can come today while the door is open. Today. But it's a narrow gate. You have to come alone. You got to strive. But can I just say this? There's a gate, ladies and gentlemen. We serve a God who did the unthinkable. And He opened a gate between a world that's so amazing we could never imagine it, that connected a world that's so horrific we can't stand it. And He opened a gate. He made a crack. He made a way that you and I could come through. He did that. And the gate's open right now. I don't know if it's going to be open tomorrow, but it's open right now. I don't know if it's going to be open after lunch, but it's open right now. If you come, you come through that gate, He will save you. And you will, your life will be connected to that unbelievable world of eternity with Him. He made a gate. That's a good God. Let's stand, bow our heads. Father, we worship You this morning because You're so good to us. You tell us the truth. And Lord God, I recognize that whatever needs to be accomplished in this room, only You can do. And so, Father, it's... It's between you and each of us individually. Lord, there are parents in this room whose hearts are just broken. There are places on this altar stained with their tears for their lost and wayward children. Oh God, we who encourage them this morning that there are tears running down your face as you Long to gather them like a hen. They're not alone in their weeping. They're not alone in their grief over the loss of children who turn their back on you and live for themselves. Lord, there are husbands in this room right now who are apart from you. There are wives who wake up in the middle of the night and pray silently beside the man that they love and they stick by him because they trust you, Lord. They trust you and they know that you're good and God, they know that you've called them to to not turn their back on the covenant that they made before you, Lord, but it's hard. It's hard. It's hard because he rebels against you, Lord. He chases after things of the world. He causes pain and grief. She prays. Will you just encourage her right now, Lord, that, that you weep over that man's pride. Father, there are children and husbands in this place who have a mom that does not have a place in heaven. And she comes to church and she dresses up and she plays the game. But she's not your daughter. And Lord, they've tried to bring up the topic. They've tried to have the talk and Yet, Lord, somehow it never works and people get angry and mad and self-righteous. Lord, in this moment right now, can we just all lay down our swords right now, Lord? We just lay them down before you. And we say, God, there's no sorrow in this room that compares to yours. We did not create anyone. We have not made this place. We have not caused all of this to exist only to be mocked 
So, Lord, today is your day, and it's a day of salvation. So if the gate is open today, Lord, will you call? Will you call those children you want to adopt through it for your glory? And as a family, we'll receive them and love them and care for them. And, Father, we'll give you the glory and praise. In Jesus' name.